Thank you for joining us for this message from Cornerstone Community Church in Lynchburg, Virginia. And now let's join our guest speaker. Well, thanks for coming back. These are the serious ones. We were talking about this at lunch. People are serious about this. All right, so we're talking about the two groups of people that you're going to have a chance to rescue. The people you don't know, which is what we just focused on. Now we've got to get to the other group. So for the other group of people, the people that you know and see every day, I'm going to suggest you make a list and pray for them every day by name. I don't really care where you write it down. I think it's important to write it down. Keep it with your Bible so when you have your quiet time with God that you go down the list and pray for them every day by name. I heard David Jeremiah preach a message one time, and he said, if you pray general prayers, expect God to give you general answers. If you have the faith and the boldness to pray specific prayers, you can look for specific answers. So what do you think God's more impressed with? Here's option number one. Lord, I'm so concerned about all my friends. Save them all. Option two. God, my heart's breaking for John and Jill and Bonnie, Ken and Chris. Lord, please, today, cross their paths with someone who'll share with them. Take the blinders off their eyes. Draw them to yourself. Or God, if you want to use me, prompt me through your Holy Spirit and help me to be obedient. Number two. Okay? Now, here's a tough question. You ready for the question? If God were to save everyone you prayed for this morning, how many people would be saved? <laughs> that was a downer, huh? Okay, yeah, think about it. It's important. All right, now, you want to consistently show these people that know you that you are different and look for opportunities to tell them why you're different. Because these are the people that know that you were a no-good, dirty, rotten scoundrel. They know that you've made all kinds of mistakes, you've made bad decisions, and they recognize that. But when they see a consistently changed life, they're going to know that something happened to you because a consistent Changed life convinces people of Jesus' power. And the most, it's often the most effective way to influence someone that you know. A changed life convinces people of Jesus' power. And here's one. This is Paul Washer. I love this statement. This is an opportunity for self-examination. He said, the evidence of salvation, the evidence of repentance, the evidence of faith is a changed and changing life. That says we're being sanctified. We continue to change. And that's proof something really happened to you. And be available to be used. Have you figured out? You don't have to go looking for people to share with. Okay? The only people I go looking to share with are police officers. The rest of them, I let God bring them to me. Don't miss the ones that are right under your nose like he does. Hello, I'm the world. And I'm trying to pray. Do you mind? Oh, no. No, Here I'm sorry. My Lord, send me. Here my I Lord, just thought we were going to, you know, do the... Shh. Hello. Do you not see I'm having a conversation with the Almighty? Here am I, Lord. Send me. Where's he going to send you to? Uh, sign language school? No. He's going to send me to all the people that are hurting in the world that need to know the Lord. Shh. Here am I, Lord. Send oh, you, you know what? I'm, I'm, I'm hurting. In fact, just last week I had this situation where I didn't know what I was going to do. Okay, okay, okay. Do you not see that I'm that I'm praying? to God. I'm trying to get instruction on where to go next, okay? And that voice is a still small voice. It's still, and it's small, and it's a voice. And your voice is big, and it's animated, and it's loud, and it overpowers anything. Well, you see where I'm going with this. Here, my Lord, send me. Sorry. just thought maybe God was... Okay, God, we're going to have to um, finish this a different time and a different place, uh, because someone keeps interrupting Hear that pop? Those are my prayer knees. 
Maybe God was sending you to me. Because I'm hurting. I love those guys. When you have your quiet time with God, I'm going to suggest you include a little prayer called the three open prayer. This is not a magical, mystical prayer, but I'll tell you something that's true about it. I've had so many testimonies of people who said, I cannot believe what happened when I started praying this prayer. And I think two things are true. Number one, if you're praying the prayer, you're going to be sensitive to the opportunities that God's going to give you that day. But number two, if you say, Lord, you bring me people, I'm going to tell them how to get in the lifeboat. Trust me, he's going to answer it. So where does the prayer come from? In Colossians, it says, and pray for us, too, that God may open a door for our message that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. So from this passage of Scripture, Ron created this amazing prayer that's got three opens in it. And the first open is, Lord, open doors. Now, what are you asking God to do when you say, Lord, open doors? Give me what? An opportunity, right. But it's not just any opportunity. It has to be a natural opportunity for you to bring up your relationship with Christ. Let me illustrate. This is Main Street, Daytona Bike Week 2000. Half a million people converge on the city. It's wall-to-wall motorcycles and people within a 25-mile radius of Daytona. Here's another picture of it here. It's been tradition that we test drive motorcycles when we go down there. Um, and one of the motorcycles we like to ride is a Boss Hoss. It's made in Tennessee. It has a 502-horsepower Corvette engine in it. First gear is good to 120 miles an hour, and then you can shift to second. I have never been in second, but zero to sheer terror with a crank of the throttle. Now, I know why I am where I am, and I know that of a half a million people, God's going to put somebody in line next to me I'm going to connect with. So I get in line to test drive a motorcycle. Two guys come walking up. I started a conversation. I said, hey, my name's Don. What's your name? The first guy said, my name's John. Second one said, my name is Tom. What if I said, hey, John and Tom, nice to meet you. Speaking of Jesus, would that be natural? No. They're going to run. Here's what really happened. I said, hey, where are you guys from? They said, we're from Pennsylvania. I said, no way. Me too. Where? Southeastern Pennsylvania. No way. Me too. Where? Berks County. You've got to be kidding me. Me too. Where? We live in Ole. I said, I went to church in Ole for 10 years. John said, what church did you go to? I said, the New Life Bible Fellowship Church. He said, you've got to be kidding me. My son plays indoor soccer in your church gym every winter. I said, John, I built all the boards for the indoor soccer. Tom says, my son plays basketball in that gym every winter. Now, what are the chances that out of a half a million people, they're going to be in that line on that day, not even two people away from me? And stuff like this happens to me regularly. So where do these natural opportunities come from? I think they come from three general sources. When someone shares with you something good or bad that's going on in his or her life, that is a natural opportunity. And every person in this room has had that happen. Somebody shares with you a a, a story, a struggle, a positive thing, that's a natural opportunity. You could be talking to someone you suspect or know is unsaved about something going on in your life. That is a natural opportunity. Or it could be something going on in the news. And there's never been a time in my lifetime that there's been more to talk about in the news than today. For people that are paying even the least bit of attention, they are concerned about the future. We've read the end of the story. We know what's going to happen. And we've noticed the progression in Bike Week that every year it seems to get easier and people are, people are more open than they were the previous year to hear what we have to share. So when one of these natural opportunities occurs, the door opens for you to share. So what do you do when the door opens? The first thing you do is offer to pray for that person right then. You say, well, hold on, Don. That's pretty open-ended. What if I'm in line at Walmart 
and they try to scan something, won't scan. They've got to send somebody all the way to the other end of the store to get the price on it. And the line is backing up, and the person next to me starts complaining about all the stuff going on in their life. Perfect. Just say, hey, listen, I, you know, I, I hear what you're saying, and I don't even know you, but I'm really sorry to hear you're going through these struggles right, right now. When I go through struggles like you go through, you're going through now, I go to my Father in Heaven in prayer, and He hears me, and He answers me. I'd be honored and blessed if you'd let me pray with you about this situation. Why don't we step out of line? I'll pray with you. When we get back in line, you can even get in front of me. Wherever it happens to be. I mean, the first time I ever did it was in Daytona. It was 7 o'clock in the morning. There's almost no one up at 7 o'clock in the morning in Daytona. They're sleeping off the night before. Okay? And so I'm at a gas pump. My buddy's waiting for me on the street. And I'm filling up my tank. And a guy comes up and starts a conversation. So I said, well, this, this is a divine appointment. So I end up sharing the gospel with the guy. I'm sitting on my bike. I got my arm around him, and I'm praying with him. And as I pull down the street, my buddy goes, stop. I saw you back there hugging that man. Why were you hugging him? I said, I wasn't hugging him. I was praying with him. He goes, where do you find these people? I said, I don't find them. They kind of find me. That's true, okay? The second thing is, and this is critical, you must use their first name in the prayer. You say, why is that important? Here's why. Because a lot of these people that you're going to meet have never, ever heard their name in a prayer. And God does something in their heart the first time they hear their name in a prayer. And you're going to see tears from people that you'd bet money you wouldn't see tears from. Let me illustrate. This is my buddy Chet. Chet is a former drug dealer and Satanist. He's one of the most bold, faith-filled followers of Jesus Christ I have ever met. When I first went to Daytona in 2000, I met this guy. He's from Jacksonville. And I didn't know anything about Florida or Daytona. I followed him around and watched him be the hands and feet of Jesus Christ to the people he met. He, he was so bold in the things he did and so unashamed and so faith-filled. I said, I want to be like him. I want to watch this guy. And I want to model my life after him. He amazed me. He's the unofficial chaplain for all the outlaw motorcycle clubs in Florida. And when one of those guys dies, they get on the phone and call Preacher Man. That's what they call him. And he'll go and do the funeral service for one of these outlaws. He started a biker church in Jacksonville called Highway to Heaven. They met in a circus tent for three years. I've taught there three times. And now they're actually in a building. And it's a tough group. I mean, they're constantly, you know, are we going to continue, not continue? Because all the problems you have with the biker community. But he was on Main Street. So what Main Street looked like. It's wall-to-wall people. He said, I was standing there on the sidewalk with my Christian patch on, my wraparound sunglasses. He said, I'm just kind of watching the freak show. Out of the corner of my eye, he said, I saw a guy coming down the street that was head and shoulders taller than every other human being on the street, on the sidewalk. And he said, look at the size of that guy. And he was a big dude. He wasn't like skinny. He was built. It turns out he was the president of the biggest outlaw motorcycle club from Chicago. He's a one percenter. We call him one percenter. He's a cruel criminal. He's a bad dude, okay? So he chats as I kept looking at him. As he got closer, I didn't want to stare at him, but he said I just was amazed at how big he was. And he said, as he got closer, I'm watching him out of the corner of my glasses, and he walks behind me and stops. He says, now I'm looking out of the corner of my eyes going, why is he standing behind me? And all of a sudden, he said, I got poked and I turned and there he was. And I looked up and I said, what? He said, hey, are you one of them? He said, one of who? He said, are you one of them Christian bikers? And he goes, yeah, I am. He goes, huh. He took six or eight steps down the sidewalk and stopped and hesitated. Traffic's all flowing around him on the sidewalk. And Chet says, out of the corner of my eye, I saw him turn around and come back and then I got scared. And he goes, I'm not looking at him. I'm just watching him like this. And all of a sudden he pokes me and I turn and go, what? And he goes, would you do me a favor? He said, sure. What what do you want me to do? He goes, I'd like you to pray for me. He goes, I'd love to pray for you. What's your first name? So Chet says, I put my hands on his shoulders. 
And he said, I stood there on Main Street, and as soon as I said his name, he started to cry. He cried through the whole prayer. Chet said, when I said in Jesus' name, amen, the tears had run all the way down his neck, soaked the collar of his T-shirt. He wipes the tears away. He goes, thanks. Uh, Could you do me another favor? He said, sure. What do you want me to do? He goes, I'd like you to pray for each of my men. And Chet says, are they here? He goes, yeah, they're here. Chet said instantly 10 of the biggest, baddest dudes he's ever seen surrounded him. And the head guy says, okay, men, line up here, single file on the street. This man's going to pray for you. Line them up. Chet said, I went down one at a time, laid hands on each of them, got their name, prayed with them, shared a gospel, piece of gospel literature with them. I had a similar thing happen. I had a six foot five inch, 300 pound deputy in my drive to my garage, was supposed to go motorcycle riding with me, hadn't shared the gospel with him yet. I took him ATV riding. I just wanted him to see him, a regular guy. And he was an hour and a half late and he came in a pickup truck. And I walked out, and even know who it was, and I'm like, where's your motorcycle? He said, it's at home. It was pouring rain at my house. I didn't think it wasn't raining here. I said, well, you should have called me, man. I said, I know what happened to you. And he goes, oh, something bad happened. Door just opened. And I said, what happened? He goes, you met my wife. And I said, yeah. And he goes, I just found out she's been having an affair with three different guys. I caught her today. I've thrown her out. She's never allowed back at my house. Now I'm trying to figure out how I'm going to raise three little girls all by myself. I said, Greg, I never pushed my faith in you, man, but I said, you need prayer. He goes, Don, please pray for me because I have no idea how I'm going to handle this. So I put my hands on his shoulders, and as soon as I said, Greg, he lost it. I mean, he sobbed, gasping for air, uncontrollably crying. I said, in Jesus' name, amen. I went over, grabbed a roll of paper towels, pitched them to him. He's blowing his nose and wiping his eyes. He goes, I am so sorry. I am so embarrassed. I can't believe I lost it in front of you. I said, listen. You don't have to be embarrassed about anything. I don't think any less of you. This is probably one of the biggest trials you've ever gone through in your life. And he goes, yeah. And I said, probably not going to be over anytime soon. And I said, there was a time I couldn't do this because God wasn't my father. I said, I rebelled against him. I broke all of his commands, but I've turned from that lifestyle, turned from my sin. You know what sin sin is. You're a Catholic. And I I said, uh, I gave my life to Christ. I've trusted him to save me. I'm following him. And I know that when I die, I'm going to heaven. And I know that when I pray, God hears me, and he loves to answer me. Would you like to know you can have that same kind of experience? He said, yeah, I would. Tell me. And I shared with him. That was like nine years ago this past May. He is still not saved as far as I know. You know why? won't repent. You cannot follow Christ and be saved if you're not willing to turn from the things that separate you from God. I mean, it's just a simple fact. And I called him up one day. He could barely talk. I said, what's the matter with you? He goes, ah, I was chasing a teenager last night, and I fell on a curb and broke three ribs. I said, so what if one of those ribs had punctured your heart or your lung or your spleen? Where would you be today? He goes, hell. I said, that doesn't concern you. I said, God's chasing you, man. Don't make him up the stakes to get your attention. And I'm still, even today, praying for him and his ex-wife. But the key is to pray with them. Here's Sergeant York. When we first got to the speedway, I parked my motorcycle. They drove up to find two spots next to each other. They parked and came back. As they're walking back, this guy here, Lou, security guard, sees Charlie and Dave, and this was a God thing, even though it was not good. He yelled something obscene across the parking lot to the two of them. I can't repeat what he said, but I'll clean it up. He said, you guys are here a little too early for the beer and women. Charlie recognized that was a connection. To my shame, if the guy had said that to me, I think I would have ignored him and kept walking. Okay? Not Charlie. So Charlie goes walking up to him, and I'm like, okay, should I get in the middle of this? I'm like, no, he's been through this four times. Let me see what he does. He goes up to this guy, Lou, and he goes, hey, man, what's your name? He said, my name's Lou. 
He said, I'm Charlie. This is Dave. Lou, do you have a family? He said, yes, I do. He said, tell me about your family. He said, I have a wife and two little girls at home. He said, Lou, if your wife and two little girls was standing right next to you in this parking lot, would you have shouted that obscene thing across the parking lot to me? And he goes, no. He goes, then why'd you do it in front of God? And Lou said, what? Charlie said, God heard exactly what you said. And God is really unhappy with Lou right now. And Lou goes, what are you talking about? And I'm like, no way. Charlie goes in and shares the gospel with the guy right here. He's sharing a gospel of John with him. It's in his left hand right here. And I think Lou got saved. Two days later, we're back at the speedway. There's thousands of people at the speedway. We're stuck in traffic. Lou is on duty. Somehow, out of the thousands of people that are there, he sees Charlie and Dave and runs all the way across the parking lot and hugs them and says, God sent you to my life to change my life. I've got to tell you what happened since I met you guys. All from an obscene comment yelled across the parking lot. We were in uh, Golden Corral for dinner one night. Two different Marines came up to Charlie and greeted him because they saw the stuff on his vest. He shared the gospel with them, told them how Jesus had changed his life, and laid hands on him and prayed for him, gave him a gospel of John. And Charlie came back and sat down, and this guy was sitting one table away. And I could see something was going on with Charlie. Well, what you, what's going on with you? And he goes, there's a, he said, turn around. I went like this. He said, see that guy? I said, and he goes, the Holy Spirit is telling me to go talk to him. I said, go ahead. I said, I'll pray for you. So Charlie gets up and walks over. His name is John. He's retired Coast Guard. Charlie ends up in this picture. It's hard to see on this side. We should all be on the other side. But anyway, right there is a camel-covered gospel of John, and here he's holding his hands and praying with him. Okay? This is just what we do, and it's amazing. I mean, I'll tell you, you talk about exciting lives and being blessed. This is what you do this. You're going you're gonna to go to bed at night just so excited about your following Jesus and what it means and the lives you can impact. Now, this one we didn't participate in, but this was all over the news. This lady in this car here is a regular at this barista coffee shop. She came in this one day, and she's just crying. This young fellow here said, can I ask what's wrong? She said, my husband has never been seriously ill in his life, and last night he dropped dead of a heart attack. And she goes, he's gone. And she's just sobbing. He said, let me get my friends together, and we want to pray for you. And they hung out the window, grabbed her hand at the drive-up window, and prayed for her. Then they went outside, and they met the lady outside and shared the gospel with her. And the news that the TV crews came after the fact, they were questioning these guys, and they said, why, why did you do that? And he said, it's just the way we live our lives. You know, we want to tell people about Jesus. And uh, it was pretty amazing. But nothing will open the doors more than praying with someone. Okay, so the three open prayer. That was Lord, open doors. Lord, open hearts. And then Lord, open my mouth. Here's the way I pray this prayer every day. Lord, open doors, open hearts. God, help me to see the doors open. I don't want to miss them. And then give me courage and boldness to open my mouth and engage the person in conversation. Pray that prayer every day. You're going to see things you've never seen before. Chuck Swindoll said this. He said, imagine the impact our churches would have on our communities if each Christian committed to sharing the gospel once a week with someone who expresses an interest or a need, I should say. Okay, now what am I teaching you how to do? You can do this three or four or five times a day. Okay? I have a letter on my website from the pastor of a Wesleyan church in Big Flats, New York, up near Corning. The letter's church of 110 on a Sunday morning. Here's what the letter says. We as a leadership team looked at our church history and realized we hadn't led a single person to Christ in six months. We brought Don in on January 25th, and it was a spiritual turning point for our church. 
In the three months since he's been here, we have led 25 people to Christ. And they're being discipled as part of our fellowship. I told that story in Elmira, New York, a few years ago, which is right down the road from Big Flats. And the pastor put his hand up. He, goes, said, he said, Don, tell the rest of the story. And I said, I didn't know there was the rest of the story. I said, all I know is I got the letter. And he said, I'm personal friends with Bern Lytle, the pastor. In the years since you were there, they more than doubled in size. They've led over 120 people to Christ. That's why you're involved in my church today. I want to see the same thing happen here. That can happen here. If this group of people gets serious about this, you can see dramatic growth, and it can happen. And this is just proof that it happens. Okay, and even waitresses are handpicked by God. Here's why I share this. is because I could tell you four hours of waitress stories. And they are divine appointments as well. Now, sometimes, I mean, I have literally been redirected by God from one place I was going to go to eat to another. I was going to Kansas City, driving from Tennessee. I left really early in the morning. Had breakfast, no lunch, a motor, and, you know, because it's a long ride to get there. And uh, I was out near Indianapolis, and I, I, I was getting really hungry. It's like 4 o'clock, and I'm starving. So I saw there was a cracker barrel at the next exit, so I pulled off. As soon as I got to the stop sign, as clear as day, the Holy Spirit said, not Cracker Barrel, go to Applebee's. And I was like, okay, Lord, I'll go to Applebee's. Got a waitress named Lindsay, had an unbelievable experience with Lindsay sharing the gospel. And it was a God thing. So when we go into a restaurant, what we'll do is we will ask the server, say, listen, you know, we always ask a blessing on our meal. We always pray for our server. God picked this restaurant and picked you to be our server today. How could we pray for you today? The question isn't, can I pray for you? That's yes, no. The question is, how? We have had waitresses pour their hearts out to us and run off in tears. We've had them come back with multiple prayer requests. We've had them chase us into the parking lot and hug us before we left, thanking us for praying with them. Okay? Now, you're showing a difference. You need to tell them why you're different. We'll bring in a neutrally themed cover of a Gospel of John or one with a food theme. And I will write a personal note in the front to the server that says, Maya, thanks so much for the great service. This book will explain how to make the most important decision of your life, where you're going to spend eternity. God bless you, Don and Kathy, with our website. And maybe I'll make a note saying I prayed for your mom as you asked. Now, when you write something in the front of one of these Gospels, they will never throw it out. 2008, Pastor Ron came to Daytona with me for the first time. We walked into this... uh, buffet and it was a young lady who was a hostess her name was mandy and she had a name tag on that said super mandy and i was just busting on her i said i said so why'd your mom name you super mandy she goes well she goes that's not my name it's my nickname i said why are, you know, what makes you super she goes i am super i said oh, okay mandy so i paid i walked over to the side ron is paying and the holy spirit said pray for mandy and i said hey mandy she said what I said, we always ask a blessing on our meal. She laughed. She goes, why would you do that? I said, well, not that it's safe, but I said, we thank God for providing it. We ask him to bless it to our bodies. And I said, I always pray for our server, and you're not going to be our server tonight. And God just told me I need to pray for you. And she turned her eyes filled with tears, and she swallowed really hard, and she went, okay. And I said, how can I pray for you? And then she lost it. She breaks down and cries, and she said, it's way too long of a story. And I said, listen, listen, you don't have to cry. I said, I want to give you one of these little books. And I said, I'm going to show you what I'm going to give you. Our waitress is going to get one, too. I'm going to write a little note in here, and I want to tell you what this is about. I shared it with her, went, had dinner, prayed for our server, came back, gave it to her. 
Nine years later, she finds me on Facebook. And she, call, and she sends me a note and said, are you and Ron coming to Daytona this year? This was last year. I said, yeah, we are. And she said, could we get together? I'd like to see you guys. I said, sure. So some communication went back and forth. Turns out she got pregnant out of wedlock. She has a two little, two-year-old little boy named Jojo. Um, she lost her job. She has no car. She's got no, no income. Her mom, who was a server in the same restaurant, is dying. And so she had a walk to the restaurant. So she picked one that she was in walking distance. So we sat down with her, and we, um, we, Ron and I prayed for the meal, prayed for her, and um, just asked her how we could pray. And she, um, she said, uh, you know that little book you gave me nine years ago? I said, yeah. She goes, I still have it at home in my dresser. I said, have you read it? She goes, well, I've, I've read through it a little bit here and there. And I said, Mandy, have you ever been to church? She goes, I think I went to Sunday school one time when I was a little girl. So what do you think she knows about Jesus? Nothing. So I said, listen, I want to give you this other book, One Second After You Die. And I said, I want to explain this to you. And she said, I'll make a commitment to take it and read it on one condition. She said, and I said, what's that? She goes, I'd like you to write a personal note in the front and Ron to write one in the back. I said, we can do that. And so we're still praying and hoping for Mandy's salvation. You know, but they won't throw it out when you, put, when you write something in it. Okay, they'll keep it forever. It's a memento. All right? Now, the second part of this is you have to leave a great tip. Okay? Christians are the cheapest tippers on planet Earth. I had a waitress in Batavia, New York, stand up. She said, can I say something? I said, I don't know what you're going to say. She said, testimony. I said, go ahead. She said, I'm a waitress. That's how I make a living. I hate working Sundays because I want to be in church worshiping God. The ladies that I work with don't like to work Sundays because they work all day and they make no money because that's when all the cheap Christians come out to eat after church. She said, last week I had to work. Had a table of eight Christians. They had great food, great service. A lot of laughter. They carried on and stayed for a long time. They left me a total of $2 for eight meals slipped in a gospel tract. She said, you do that for the people that I work with. They hate whatever it is you believe. They want no part of it. Had a man stand up one time and he said, can I say something? Christians are the only group of people that will lie about their kids' ages to get a discount on a meal. All right, so we start at a 20% tip. It is never, ever less than 20%. In fact, I'm starting to think that, you know, when I go out on my own, I should, like, set a minimum of $5 because 20% is only, like, 3 bucks or, you know, whatever, 4 bucks, give her 5 give him 5 And so we've given, like, 80%, 60%, 70%, how we feel led. God will provide you with the money. Now, when you put that money into the Gospel of John, they're interested in what you have to say, and they'll appreciate it. But don't be a cheapskate. And, and offer to pray for them and tell them anything about your God if you're not going to leave them any money. Because they make a living by the tips. They're not slaves, okay? They're servants. All right? So, let me show you the damage you can do when you're a cheapskate. This was a pastor who went out with 19 members of her church for lunch. Um, there's a placard at the door that says, Groups of Adermora will be charged in 18% gratuity. It says it in the menu as well. Apparently, nobody saw that. When they got the bill, they panicked and wanted the bill divided up into separate bills. And they said, that doesn't change the fact that there's 20 of you at this table. There's an 18% gratuity. Here's what she wrote on the receipt. I give God 10%. Why do you get 18? Zero tip, Pastor so-and-so. We are talking about $7 here, folks. Seven bucks. The damage this person did to the cause of Christ for $7 is unbelievable. If this person is really saved, 
Good luck explaining that one at the judgment seat of Christ. Because you know where I got this? It was all over the Internet. Hundreds of thousands of people saw this and drew a conclusion as to who Christians are and what they believe based on this. Okay? So don't be a cheapskate if you're going to do it. So what's at stake? Well, the greatest fear shouldn't be what will happen if I do try to rescue them, but what will happen if I don't. There's consequences for us and for them. Ron Hutchcraft told me the story. He was in Ocean City, New Jersey, doing a weekend youth rally. And on the last night of the youth rally, one of his workers named Jamie went out on the boardwalk. It was nighttime, so the Atlantic Ocean is all dark. The boardwalk is all lit up. And she's leaning on the railing, looking out at the black ocean, just kind of meditating, praying, listening to the surf rolling in and out. And she thought she heard someone cough and choke. And she listens again. Now the woman gets a scream out. She is in the ocean drowning. So Jamie yells out, somebody call 911. There's a woman drowning. Runs down the steps, runs across the sand, stops at the edge of the water and looks. She can't see anything. It's pitch black. She's waiting for another sound. She hears a cough and a choke. She kicks her shoes off, runs into the surf. A gentleman from the boardwalk follows. They locate this woman, drag her ashore, and save her life. Meantime, EMS, fire police are rolling up lights and sirens onto the boardwalk. Ron walks out, looking around, trying to figure out what's going on. And Jamie walks up the steps in front of him, soaking wet. And he says, Jamie, what happened to you? And she said, Ron, I was out here minding my own business, and I heard a woman scream. He said, why was she screaming? She said, she was in the ocean drowning. He goes, what in the world did you do? She said, I jumped in the ocean and saved her life. He goes, wow, that has never happened in one of my youth rallies before. Tell me, what was it like? She said, Ron, you don't understand. I don't swim in the ocean during the daytime because I'm afraid of it. There's nothing that scares me more than the ocean at night. It's my greatest fear. He said, if that's your greatest fear, how are you able to do it? She said, I realized if I didn't do it, she was going to die. There was no one else around. I had to. Now, was Jamie the most qualified one to rescue that woman? No. But she was the closest one to that person. Who are you closest to? God's put them on your stretch of beach, not mine. I got my own stretch of beach to worry about. There are people that will be on your stretch of beach one time. It's called a divine appointment when you connect with someone at some level. And then there are those that are going to come and go every day. God's going to hold us responsible as watchmen on the wall for each of those categories of people. You see, De- Jamie demonstrated something called courage, which is not the absence of fear. It's disregarding the fears. You can disable the rejection button today by not worrying about what their response is. And then the rest of them, you work on a little bit over time, and all of a sudden, this is just the way you live your life. It's a daily lifestyle, and it gets very, very exciting. Okay, so we talked about recognizing why you are where you are. Number two, Every day, ask Jesus to break your heart for the lost. Number three, conquering the fears that stop you. And number four, you want to tell the story that can rescue them for eternity. This is a combination of your personal hope story. And the Jesus story, if necessary. Now, your personal hope story in general should include three parts. What was my life like before Christ? How was I converted, and how am I a new creature? If there's no difference between B.C. and A.D., you are not saved. End of discussion. Now, I like the story of the blind man in the Bible, because what you want to do is you want to show what difference did Jesus make in your life, what change occurred, what is new, okay? And the blind man in the Bible encounters Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus spits in the mud, makes some dirt, puts it on his eyelids, and says, go wash your eyes in the pool of Siloam. I would have loved to have been there when he opened his eyes for the first time. Now, to give you a feel for this, I don't know if you realize this, but only men can be, can be colorblind. Women can't be. And some people are totally colorblind. 
And they've invented these, these like sunglasses that can actually allow men to see color accurately for the first time. Every single video I saw of someone getting these glasses wept when they opened their eyes the first time. They give you full, all these beautiful colored balloons to blow up to put in front of the person so when they put the glasses on, that's what they see. So this is a video of a 65-year-old grandfather getting a pair of these glasses. And no, this has got to be cranked up because it's kind of quiet. So imagine a man who's blind from birth. He never sees anything. When he opens his eyes, you don't think he was excited? Everybody in Jerusalem knew this incredible miracle had occurred, including the religious leaders and the Pharisees. But they're so focused in their hatred and jealousy of Jesus, all they want to do is get this guy to say something against him that they can use as an excuse to kill him. So they question him. They don't like his answers. The Bible says they threw him out. Brought his parents in to question them. His parents were afraid they'd be put out of the synagogue if they told the truth. And they said, hey, our son is of legal age. Don't ask us. Ask him. You can read the conversation that occurs between him and the religious leaders. And I don't know about you, but I think he smiled through the whole thing. And he gives God all the glory. And they curse him. And they say, how do you know it was God? He says, come on. You're religious leaders. When has one man ever been able to give another man sight? It's got to be God. And they curse him and say, just tell us he's a sinner. And what's he say? Hey, look. I don't know whether he's a sinner or not. All I know is I was born blind. I've never seen anything until today. Today I met a man named Jesus from Nazareth, and now I can see better than all of you. You're pretty smart men. Put two and two together and see what you come up with. I come up with four. He showed a tremendous difference that Jesus had made in his life. The point is don't let the devil discount your story. You have a story to tell, and no one can argue with it. Okay, I was an Eagle Scout, raised Catholic, wanted to be a cop. How bad of a kid do you think I was growing up? Never took drugs, never smoked, never, never drank alcohol. And God still uses my story to impact some people's lives, and he can use yours as well. And so here's another pattern. We talked about B.C., conversion in A.D. Here's another simple pattern based on the story. Here's my story. This is who I was. I was blind. I was helpless. I was hopeless in my sin. Then I met Jesus. This is how he changed my life, and no one can argue with that story. And... You don't need to be a great speaker with a large vocabulary to share the good news effectively because the persuasive power is in the story, not in the storyteller. It's not about us. And sadly, you may need to tell the Jesus story. Now, what I mean by that is you will meet people 
even in the Bible Belt, that have never been in church. So they don't know anything about what's in the Bible. So it's all going to be Greek to them. And so you may have to go back and tell some of the Jesus stories so they understand why he came, what he did, if you have the time. Now, I think from our perspective, we don't walk by people hanging on crosses, praise the Lord. But in the scriptures, when it says, and they let him out and crucified him, everybody back then knew exactly what it meant because they walked in front of people that were hanging on crosses. So just to give you a little wake-up call, if you will, this is a historically accurate scourge. Now, I don't beat anybody with it, so it's not flexible. But it is dangerous. I've literally drawn blood on myself twice in presentations with this thing. But what they would do is they would strip a person to the waist, wrap their arms around a big tree trunk, line up 13 of the biggest, baddest soldiers they could find because they never let one person do the whipping. It was always 13. And each would get three cracks with the whip so no one would get tired. And they would wager among themselves who was going to pull out the biggest hunk of flesh out of the person's back. And they would take this and they would swing it and hit them from the shoulders down to the back of the legs. And when they yanked this backward, it ripped golf ball-sized chunks of flesh out of the back. So Jesus survives that. He's a pretty tough guy. He's a carpenter. Then they took him out and crucified him. They've recovered skeletons of people who were crucified with the nails still in the bones because they couldn't get them out. These are what the nails look like. They were seven inches long, square, tapered down. They would drive it between the radius and the ulna bones and the wrist, which was considered part of the hand. They would lift the legs up really high to take away the strongest muscles in the body because you had to push and pull to breathe every time you wanted to breathe. And they would drive a nail through both feet from the front wrap the feet around the cross and put a nail in through each heel. Again, pain we can't even imagine. So this is a video of a trauma center surgeon from Kansas City who's a follower of Jesus Christ describing the physical pain that Jesus experienced so we could go to heaven. Yeah, I, I believe that Christ's suffering... Uh, and the demonstration of the kind of, um, of physiologic stress that his human body was under uh, is manifested in the Garden of Gethsemane, where it's described that he was sweating blood. And there, are, there is a well-documented uh, medical condition in which patients who are under tremendous amount of uh, emotional stress and physiological stress can, in fact, uh, sweat blood because little blood vessels within the glands burst and then the blood is expressed. The, the, the scourge involved the use of a, a short whip with pieces of uh, typically metal, sometimes bone, sometimes pieces of porcelain wrapped in these leather straps, which is then utilized to, to come across uh, typically the back, the shoulders, the legs of the victim. Uh, and uh, the first few passes across a particular body part would tear through the skin, the fat, uh, but eventually, once the outer layers were, were uh, torn away, it would start getting in the muscle and the tendon. And of course, along the way, you're ripping through all the blood vessels that supply all those tissues. And so you're losing blood the whole time. The plant that was described um, uh, actually had a very long thorn, um, not the little thorns that we would think from a rose bush. These were thorns that were uh, typically an inch and a half to two inches in length. The scalp is one of the most vascular portions of our bodies. It had a huge blood supply up there. So then having those thorns shoved down into the, you know, down onto the bony plate would have gone through all the scalp 
which in and of itself would have created a huge amount of blood loss. Uh, I've seen people actually bleed to death from just a scalp injury. So uh, it's not a small injury to have, uh, who knows, dozens uh, of these things shoved into your scalp. And so that would have caused more blood loss. Typically when a victim has to uh, uh, carry the cross, what has been described uh, in the literature, in, in actual Roman literature, is they, they describe, the, they, they carry the crossbar. Uh, and the crossbar is estimated alone, was estimated to weigh about 110 pounds. And of course, if your arms are stuck out here, wrapped up on the cross, crossbar, and you fall down, you need help getting up. You, you, you just can't get up on your own because there's no possible way without your arms to get up. So he would have needed help getting up. If he, fall, if he fell over, there's a good chance that he could have hit his chest, which, which then could account for the possibility of a cardiac injury. Anatomically, we consider the wrists as part of the hand. And so uh, with the placement of the nails between the radius and the ulna, at that position, it, it still fits, fits the definition of being in the hand, and it's in a position in which the nail won't rip out, which you have to have, you have, to have a solid point of fixation. Uh, another interesting point about the placement of that is the median nerve goes right straight through that particular uh, 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 portion of the wrist, and so there would have been uh, either destruction of the nerve or, or impingement of the nerve that would have created tremendous amount of pain so that every time you try to take a breath, you'd be, it'd be agonizing. You'd be pushing down on spiked feet, which of course hurt, and then you'd be hanging on spiked arms. And so you alternate from excruciating pain to excruciating pain every time you take a breath. So, so even if he survives the actual crucifixion, he would have had to survive what I believe to be a, a a lethal injury from the spear just to find out whether he was alive or not. What's described is the loss of water and blood, and that would entail either the, the uh, uh, either pleural effusion or pericardial effusion, and the blood would have come from either pulmonary artery, a pulmonary vein, the aorta or vena cava, or the heart itself. None of those injuries, unless you're treated immediately by a trauma surgeon like myself, with all the advanced equipment that we have would be survivable after even a few minutes. Christ as the Son of God could have survived anything. He chose to manifest himself as a human at that point in time and allowed himself to die. And, and being human at that point in time, he could not have survived this particular series of traumas. It's not possible. Um, Christ as God could have survived anything they threw at him. And, but he chose to be Christ, the human, at that point in time to die for our sins. And that given that, that self-limitation of remaining to be human, he died. He did not survive the event. I, uh, I'm profoundly impacted by it. Because I realized that the price that he paid was something I'm not. I would be never be willing to do for probably anybody. It's very difficult for me to even 
to sing songs about the cross, even in worship. Because I truly do understand what he paid, the price that he paid. as the physical pain was there was a spiritual pain that followed that we can't comprehend because for the first time in all of eternity God was going to turn his back on his son they'd be separated the Bible says when that happened at noontime and God poured all of his righteous anger and wrath out on his innocent son because of what we did the sky turned black it stayed dark for three hours and right before three o'clock Jesus cried out my God my God why have you abandoned me and he said it is finished and when he died all of his creation shook the rocks broke open and the veil in the temple was torn from top to bottom, laying open the Holy of Holies for everyone to see. We don't even really understand that because we don't have the temple today. But I read that the veil in the temple was seven inches thick of solid material. And it was so heavy, it took 300 men to hoist it up just to hang it. And God tore it like wet tissue paper down the center. Jesus is put in a grave. He's there for three days. After three days, he is raised from the dead just like he said he would be. He's seen by more than 500 people at a time over a period of 40 days. It's a historical fact that he's alive. If you have the time and you need to tell the story, tell the story. And it's critical when we share the gospel with someone that we say it in words they can understand. Here's the problem. Because we have a church-based education, we've learned biblical terms that we understand because we go to church. But if you're talking to someone who has never been in church, they're not going to understand it. And Ron Hutchcraft calls that language that we speak, Christianese, the language of Christians. What are some Christianese words that we would use to share the plan of salvation with someone that we understand because we go to church? But if the person has never been to church, they might not understand. Saved and lost. I am not lost. I'm in Lynchburg. I know exactly where I am. Good. What else? Born again, Nicodemus didn't understand it. Religious leader. Shed his blood. Yeah, imagine you're at Sheets. Never been in church. You're pumping gas in your car. A, a biker, big ape hanger handlebars, pulls in on his motorcycle on his Harley on the other side. Gets off his bike. He's got tattoos and piercings all over, but he's a follower of Christ now. Puts his two gallons in his tank, puts the nozzle back in the pump, and the Holy Spirit says, tell the person on the other side of the pump about Jesus. And he goes, okay, Lord, I got it. And he steps around the pump and says, excuse me, you know what you need? You need to be washed in the blood. If you have never been in church, you're going to leave with the nozzle still in the side of your car. Two strips of rubber as you pull out of there. So you don't want to start with that one, okay? Good other Christianese words. Redemption, okay. Conviction. Justification, okay. Little word. Repent, very good. Sin, very good, yeah. So if you use any of these words, you have to be sensitive to the fact that they may not understand what you're saying. You might as well be talking Hebrew. They're not going to get it. So Ron Hutchcraft has a way of presenting the gospel with no Christianese in four sentences. But I ruined it by adding three Christianese words at the end. And you don't understand why when we get there. But you want to stick to Jesus. The devil wants you to talk about your church, your pastor, the worship team, anything but Jesus. The command from hell for 2,000 years is get people to edit out Jesus. 
God is okay. Talk about God and his love and all this stuff all you want. But don't mention Jesus because that's how people are going to be saved. So when someone says to me, what church do you go to? I say, I go to a Bible-believing church. Can I tell you what the Bible says? And after I'm 100% successful planting the gospel seed in their heart, I'm going to invite them to go to church and tell them why. But don't put the cart before the horse. Paul said, for I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's what you want to focus on. And inviting someone to church is not a substitute for sharing your faith. Because very few people will come to church if you invite them. So you've got to be sure to share the gospel with them first. I'll give you an example. I have invited countless unsaved people in two and a half years living in Tennessee to church. Can't get one person to come. Not one. And I've tried. I've tried really hard. Can't get them to come. So you've got to make sure you share the gospel first. The old apostle Paul said it best. He said, you know, his job was to win them, win the lost by all possible means. Well, this is just a way. And it's not actually through the, the confines of a church building. Mm-hmm. You understand what I'm saying? Well, you can go to church, which is not in the Bible, that term, going to church. Mm-hmm. You can meet with your brothers and sisters for 40 years and never bring anybody to Jesus. Mm-hmm. But you went to church for 40 years. You think about it, you say, we need to get the gospel of Jesus out away from the church building. Most of these folks, trust me, they're not coming to your church building. So so we're just taking it basically to them instead of waiting on them and inviting them to church to come to worship with us and some heathen saying, you ain't going to get me coming up in there. What if they disagree with you? It's okay if they disagree with you. Just say, hey, listen, I appreciate what you believe. Can I just tell you what the Bible says? Because that's my goal is to plant the seed in their heart. Now, if you want to challenge somebody, I'll say, okay, so what's your source of information and how do you know it's true? Because I can defend mine. And you'll find out, well, it's, it's just how, their feelings. And it's, well, it's just what I choose to believe. Well, you know, where'd you get it from? They made it up. Okay? And so you can actually use the scriptures, and I don't want to get into that whole thing, to just prove what you believe is true. And you want to tell them about life's most important relationship. Here's the gospel. First point, no Christianese. There's a relationship you were created to have. You say, oh, that's, that's interesting. Yeah, God's the creator. We are his creation. He's eternal. We're going to be eternal. Why else would he do it unless he wanted to have a relationship with us? It makes total sense logically. Scripture says in Colossians, all things that includes you and me were created by him and for him, referring to Jesus Christ. Number two, it's a relationship you don't have. And you say, hold on, Don. You just said I was created to have it. So if I was created to have it, why don't I have it? Here's why. I was created for him, as it said in Colossians, but I have lived for me. We've all done that. There's a little word to describe it, which is sin. Your sins have separated you from your God. So if you use the Christianese word, you've got to be able to define it. I'll give you two simple definitions. First one is very simple. Spell it. S-I-N. If you take off the S, take off the N, what's left? Hey, easy to remember. I'll make the decisions. I'll do what I want to do. I'm running my life. That separates us from God for all of eternity. You must deal with the sin issue somehow before you present a solution. If they don't know they have the fatal disease, then offering them the cure is going to make no sense. I also think that in our society, it it helps to let people know that the Bible says if we're guilty of breaking just one of his commandments, we are just as guilty as a person who's broken them all. 
Scripture says in James, for the person who keeps all the laws except one is as guilty as a person who's broken all of God's laws. Well, what if they say they're good enough? I can't tell you how many people have said that they are good enough or they think they're good enough. And that last question of my six, if you were to die suddenly today, where do you think you'd spend eternity? Most of them are going to say, oh, I think I'd go to heaven. You say, why is that? Because they'll say, I'm a really good person. We were in, we were in Daytona, but we went to the Hungry Heifer for breakfast. And we got there late this one morning. There were three people in front of us, and it was me, Ron, and Charlie York. Ron had a Holy Spirit prompting, and he said to the three people in front of us, Hey, I see they're clearing a table there for six people. There's three of you and three of us. Would you mind if we shared the table with you for breakfast? And they said, Sure, come on along. We sat down with Bruce and Julie and Tristan. Bruce and Julie are married. Tristan is their adult daughter. Mom and dad work for her. Dad does installations. Had a 3,000-pound air conditioner fall on his leg the previous October, snapped it like a twig. He was just getting ready to start rehab. So we, when we prayed for our server, we also prayed for each of them. They gave us requests. Then one of us, and I don't remember who started it and who said what, because all three of us were involved because we know how to do this, said, if you were to die suddenly today, where do you think you'd spend eternity? Julie blurts out, I know for sure that I'd go to heaven. And one of us said, really, why is that? She said, because I'm a really good person, really, really good person. And one of us said, really? She goes, no, that's not what I said. I am a really, really good person. And we said, oh, okay, can we put it to the test? She said, sure, put it to the test. Here's what we did. Rate comforts, weigh the master. Uh, no better way to deal with the sin issue than using the Ten Commandments, okay? Ray is interviewing a teen on the beach. Watch how this young fellow responds when Ray asks him about four of the Ten Commandments. Okay, can you name any of them? Um, yes, thou shalt not murder. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not... Oh, well, I, I know. Yeah. You know a few. Yeah. Now, do you think you've kept those Ten Commandments? Um, yes. Have you ever told a lie? Well, at some times, you know, most every human does. So you broke that one. Yeah. So what are you called if you tell a lie? A liar. Have you ever stolen? No, sir, I haven't. Even something really small. Be honest before God. Well, I guess a little stuff. Like yeah. maybe like a piece of gum or something. A piece of gum. So, what does that make you? Oh, a stealer, I guess. Thief. See, the value of the thing you steal doesn't make any difference. If I open your wallet and just take out one dollar, it's as bad as taking out a hundred dollars. I'm a thief. Now, Jesus said, if you, if we look at a woman and lust after her, we commit adultery with her in her heart. You ever done that? Um, no, sir. You looked at a woman with lust. Oh well. <laughs> your friend over there is laughing at you. He doesn't think you're speaking the truth. Well. I mean, yes, I have looked at a woman, you know. So you've told another lie. Right? Yes. So you've really blown it, haven't you? So you've broken three commandments. We've only looked at three. We haven't looked at the other seven. Have you ever used God's name in vain? Yes, sir. So instead of using a four-letter filth word to express disgust, you've taken the name of the God who gave you life and used his name as a curse word, which is called blasphemy. So on Judgment Day, when God judges you by that standard, are you going to be innocent or guilty of breaking his commandments? I'll be guilty of that one. Yeah. You think you'll go to heaven or hell? Um, well, I think think I'd probably go to heaven in the sense that that's that's one thing that from now on I'll try to improve myself and that God might forgive me for all my for the sins that I've broken from that. So, do you think God should let murderers and liars and thieves and adulterers into heaven? 
I guess not. So you're in big trouble. Really, you're heading for hell, aren't you? Yeah. Does that concern you? Yes. Yes, it does. Because there's nothing more valuable than your life, is there? Would you sell one of your eyes for a million dollars? No, sir. Your eyes are precious to you, aren't they? And they're the windows of your soul. Your soul or your life looks out those, those eyes. And Jesus said, you're to despise the value of your eye compared to the value of your soul. He said, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you, for it's better to enter heaven without an eye than go to hell with both your eyes. And do you know why Jesus died on the cross? Why he did? For, uh, for sinning. Sinning? Well, he died for our sins, for the sins of the world. Of everybody around the world, by you know, sacrificing himself for everyone else. Now, do you know how to... Uh, partake in that gift of salvation. Do you know what you should do? No. Well, if you were on a plane and you knew you had to jump and there was a parachute under the seat, what would you do? I'd take the parachute. Put it on. You wouldn't just believe in it, would you? You'd put it on. Yes. That's exactly what you have to do with Jesus. The Bible says put on the Lord Jesus Christ. You've got to repent. That is, turn from your sins once and for all and put your faith in Jesus the same way you put your trust in a parachute. The moment you do that, Bible says you'll pass from death to life. You'll come out of darkness into light. And you'll receive God's gift of everlasting life. Jesus said, What shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? You're a young man. You've got your whole life ahead of you. What age do you think you'll die at? Um, hopefully at an age where I, fulfill, I feel that I've fulfilled my life probably. Hopefully 80, 85. Do you believe that you could die today? Yes, I do. So shouldn't, shouldn't you make peace with God today? Yes, I should. Will you give some serious thought to what we're talking about? Do you have a Bible? Get on your knees somewhere. Say, God, forgive me. I'm a sinner. Change my heart. And Jesus, I trust you with my eternal salvation. Pick up a Bible. Read it and obey what you read. And God will never let you down. Hey, thanks for listening. Had him right there. Why didn't you lead him in a prayer? Because, again, nobody in the Bible ever got saved by praying a prayer. Uh, it's a heart's decision now. They never pray, lead somebody in a prayer. They'll say, go ahead if you want to talk to God. He's looking at your heart. Now, I think when you look up the word conviction in the dictionary, there's the face. That's the poster child of conviction written all over his face. Okay? But this is a standalone gospel presentation. If you want to just do this, it works great. You could just start out and say, hey, if you were to die suddenly today, where do you think you'd spend eternity? And they're going to nine out of ten times say, oh, I'm going to go to heaven. You say, why is that? Because I'm a really good person. Oh, really? Can we put it to the test? They never say no when you say, can you put it to the test? Because they really think they are a good person because they're comparing themselves to the son of Sam or to some, you know, ISIS fighter or something. Okay, and sure, you're a saint compared to them, but that's not the standard. The standard is a perfect and holy God. So here's what happened with Julie. One of us said, hey, Julie, you ever told a lie? She goes, of course I've told lies. Everybody has. So we said, so what do you call it if you tell lies? You don't call them a liar. You let them say, I'm a liar. Admit it. Okay. Have you ever stolen anything, regardless of value, taken anything that didn't belong to you? She said, well, I've probably taken something from time to time. So what do you call it if you've taken something from time to time? She said, a thief. Julie, have you ever looked at another person to lust after that person? She goes, yeah, usually once a week I see some hot guy. And we said, okay, so Jesus said if you've, already, if you've lusted after that person, you've already committed adultery with that person in your heart, so you're an adulterer at heart. Let me ask you one more question. Have you ever used God's name in vain? She said, I curse and swear like a drunken sailor. Okay, Julie, by your own admission, you're a lying, thieving, adulterate heart who blasphemes God. Julie, you're batting four for four in the Ten Commandments. If we look at the other six, you're going to be as guilty as me because I failed the test too. So if God were to judge you based on the Ten Commandments, Julie, would you be innocent or guilty? She said guilty. 
and we said, so would you go to heaven or hell? And boom, all three faces immediately got concerned. And she goes, whoa, now you're scaring me. I said, well, what's your answer? She said, well, I guess based on what happened, hell. And we said, yeah, that's right. Does that concern you? She goes, yeah, actually it does. And we said, Julie, let us tell you what Jesus did so you wouldn't have to go to hell. And you jump right back into the gospel sharing with them. Now, when we were done with these people, they gave us the longest hugs, profusely thanked us for sharing breakfast with them. We gave them each a gospel of John with the plan of salvation in it. And they knew how to come to faith in Christ when they were ready to do it. And it might have happened that day. I don't know. Okay? But the reason we don't have this relationship we were created to have is because of sin. Here's another definition of sin. Really simple. You running your life instead of God running it. Anybody can understand that, be able to define that word for them. Now, what about those people that say, well, Don, if I'm sorry, I've heard God is an all-loving God, and therefore he should let me go to heaven, right? No. The Bible, the Bible says there's two kinds of sorrow. There's a worldly sorrow and a godly sorrow that leads to repentance. That's the one you have to have. It'd be like me in court, and the judge says, Don, you've been convicted of a serious crime. Before I pass sentence, I want to give you an opportunity to say something on your behalf. Thank you, Your Honor. I have taken three polygraph tests, each one of them with a different examiner, and every one of them proves without a shadow of a doubt I am sorry for what I've done, so I want you to let me go scot-free, no jail time, no fine, and no restitution. Is the judge going to slam the gavel down and say, okay, case dismissed, you can go home? No, he can't. He's bound by the law. We have a perfect, holy judge who's bound by his own perfect, holy law. Someone has to pay. It's either going to be us or a perfect substitute in our place. Because when we spiritually hijack control of the life that God intended to have when he created us, it carries an eternal death penalty in a real place called hell. Scripture says, for the wages of sin is death. So there's a relationship you were created to have. It's one you don't have. The good news is it's one you can have. I don't have it because of what I did. I can have it because of what Jesus did. John 3.16 is a great introduction to the gospel. Now, I've asked for Christianese words 570 times. Only one time did the word Savior come up. And we need to be able to define that because we're probably going to slip and say it. So, excuse me, who can define Savior and don't say someone who saves you from something? I'll give you a theme. What's our theme? Being a... Very good. Someone who rescues you from a deadly situation that you can't rescue yourself from. So based on this definition, Lenny Skutnik was a savior that day in the Potomac. Jamie was a savior that night on the beach. We could give them the title without the capital letter signifying deity status because they're not God, but the definition fits. And number four, it's a relationship you must choose to have. You don't get it because you went to church your whole life. You're a pastor, an elder, a deacon, a Sunday school teacher. You get it because you choose to get it. Now, true story, why you need to choose. A man named George Wilson was convicted of killing a federal guard in the 1800s during an armed robbery. He was sentenced to death by hanging. While he was sitting in prison awaiting his execution date, the U.S. president left office. And as is the custom, this U.S. president decided he was going to pardon some prisoners. One of the prisoners who got a pardon was George Wilson. So guard takes the pardon of George and says, George, I got great news, man. Take a look at this. He reads the pardon. He hands it back. and goes, I don't want this. And the guard says, George, did you read it? It's a pardon signed by the president. You are a free man. We're going to take you to town, give you a suit of clothes and some money. You get to start your life all over. He sat on his bunk and he said, I don't want it. And you can't make me leave. So the guard didn't know what to do. He took it to a supervisor. It went all the way up the chain of command to the warden of the prison who made a personal visit to George in his cell. And he couldn't convince George to leave voluntarily. 
So he didn't know what to do. He wrote a letter to the governor asking for guidance. And the governor said, boy, this has never happened in history. Told the story to the newspaper people who wrote an article about George Wilson. And a group of people got together, I think the predecessors to our present-day ACLU, and they collectively filed suit against George Wilson. They said he had to accept the pardon that was signed by the president. They couldn't keep him in prison any longer. They had to throw him out. So George said, I'm not leaving. He gets a court-appointed attorney, fights it all the way back to the U.S. Supreme Court. Here's what they ruled. The value of the pardon is determined by the one receiving the pardon. So if George didn't want to accept it, he didn't have to. So he said, I don't want it, and they hanged him. Now, did George believe a pardon existed? Yeah, but he didn't choose to accept it for himself. The same thing is true with the pardon that God offers every one of us as his created human beings. But we must individually make a decision whether we'll choose to accept it for ourselves or not. Well, that's great. So how do you do it? Three Christianese words you've got to be able to simply define. First, you've got to believe that Jesus is who he said he was and that he paid your debt in full. He said he'd be raised from the dead. You've got to believe that that's foundational. The problem is profession of faith doesn't always equal possession of faith. One thing I've learned about Tennessee is everyone in Tennessee is already saved. They all think they are. I have yet to meet a person in Tennessee that says they're not a Christian. Okay? And, and bless you. When someone says, I'm already a Christian, do not believe them. Lovingly challenge them. And here's how you do it. That's great. Tell me how it happened. That's great. Tell me your story. And you'll know within five seconds where they are or they aren't. I bought a trailer from a guy named Kip in Hellertown, Pennsylvania, to drag all of our gear across the country for our ultimate adventure trip to Utah. And we agreed on a price. We're driving to the notary, and here's the conversation that occurs. Kip says, so, you have a ministry. I said, yes, I do. He said, that's very cool. My uncle was a missionary to Brazil. I said, oh, that's neat. He goes, yeah, it wasn't very lucrative, but I guess it was rewarding. Did he need to say anything else? No, he doesn't get it. It's not about any of that. I said, well, that's an interesting thing to say. Kip, let me ask you a question. What do you believe? He said, well, I'm a Christian. I said, that's great. Tell me how it happened. He goes, well, when I was a little boy, my mom worked at a Christian camp every summer. And I said, and? He goes, and I got to go for free every summer. And I said, and? He goes, and what? I said, Kip, can I tell you what the Bible says? And we had a long spiritual discussion. Okay, so don't believe it. You've got to lovingly challenge somebody when they say they are, because especially down south, almost everybody thinks they are a Christian. And the reality of it is most of them aren't. Now, I was asked um, to speak at the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission's um, national conference, and they wanted me to study and then present on what it's like in the Bible Belt. And here's where I'm really afraid for you, and, and I'm willing to say to you something you might not ever want to hear again and never come back because I'm about to say this. In the Bible Belt, churches are jam-filled with people who have no mark of being Christians on their lives other than the fact that they attend once a week. No obedience whatsoever. No desire for obedience. No relationship with Christ. No seriousness about God. Like, this is it. You come, you check it, and you'll call yourself a Christian. And I want to lovingly tell you that if there's no desire for obedience and no obedience, you should not count yourself a Christian. You should consider yourself lost and in danger of damnation. And I know you might be going, well, that seems a little strong. How cruel would it be for me to pamper your religiosity when damnation's at stake? So you can go somewhere else. They'll talk to you about how awesome you are. But I need, compelled by the Scriptures, to tell you you're playing a dangerous, dangerous, dangerous game.
When you come and you sit and you listen to the things we say and you take no active steps of obedience, you're hardening your heart against the King of glory. What pleases God is obedience rooted in faith. Not perfect obedience because we can't do that. And that's the point of Christ and the cross. We're not going to be perfect, but we will stumble forward. And if you're not even trying to stumble forward, stop it. You're not a Christian. And I know you got baptized when you were seven and you were in RAs and your parents are Christian and you're from Texas. That does, none of that makes you a Christian. So I'm asking you because this question, heaven and hell is hinging on this question. Is your life marked by obedience rooted in faith? R.C. Sproul said, it is the possession of faith, not the profession of faith, that transfers us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. George Barna did a survey seven and a half years ago, and I would submit this is worse today than it was back then. He surveyed self-professing born-again Christians. That's us. One out of four believe in universalism. That's becoming really popular today. Universalism means there is no hell, everyone goes to heaven. So Jesus was a liar who was sadly mistaken, one or the other, or a lunatic, one or the other, right? Okay, here's another one. One out of four say it doesn't matter what faith you follow, you're still going to go to heaven. Here's the kicker. Almost half said that Muslims and Christians worship the same God. Okay, the Quran is the written ravings of a lunatic. In the, word, in, in the Quran, the word love isn't mentioned one time. And in that book, he instructs the Islamists to kill the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and any unbelievers. That's not our God. Abraham and Isaac and Jacob are the chosen people. He was a pedophile. He married a six-year-old girl. And he had 800 men beheaded in one day. I mean, this is not our God, but people believe this garbage. So when someone says to you, I'm already a Christian, don't believe them. You can lovingly challenge them. And watch the opportunities you miss if you take them at their word. Do you consider yourself a Christian? I do. Oh, yes, I am. Uh, yes. Yeah. Yes, sir. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yes. I was raised at Christianity. Do you believe you're going to heaven? Oh, I don't know. That's not up to me. <laughs> I do my best. Do you believe that you're going to heaven? Um, I can't say if I am or I, I'm not. I'd like to think so. <laughs> yes, I do. Well, I'm hoping for that, yes. <laughs> I don't know. Hopefully. How good would you have to be in order to get into heaven? Um, yeah, I don't know. I believe that there's steps, though, to get there. Do you believe that you contribute anything to your going to heaven? Yeah. Yeah, I try to make sure at least, uh, I, I try to make sure that I make some kind of an impact on someone every day. How would you react if I were to tell you that your salvation doesn't depend on your works? It depends on what Christ has already done. Well, I can agree with that, but it also depends on how you live your life. Do you, you follow what God's guidelines are? Do you believe that the Bible is God's word? Yeah. Yes. Yes. Absolutely, I do. I believe that there's some aspects of the Bible that are um, aligned with God's Word and other um, sacred literature as well. Do you think that there perhaps could be mistakes in the Bible? Well, I think if the part of the Bible is wrong, all of it's wrong. People transcribing it throughout the throughout all the decades and whatnot, I can see that happening. I think everything could possibly have a mistake. It's what you believe and your faith. I haven't found any yet. I've read a lot of, you know, sacred texts and literatures, and 
um, from all different religions because I'm kind of fascinated with that and I don't consider myself to be of one particular religion. Um, so I just think if you really read them in a roundabout way, they're all saying the same thing. How often do you attend church? Every week. A few times a month, a couple of times a month. Three or two Sundays a month. About two to three times a month. Do you believe that church membership is important? No, I don't. Okay, well, why is that? I'm curious. Um, because I believe uh, that, like, we're all really one church and that I don't need to be a member of any specific uh, organization. Do you believe that man is basically good by nature? Yes. Yes, I do. I think we can be. Well, I'd like to say yes to that. <laughs> yeah, by nature, they are supposedly, in the Bible, you was all deemed good until, you know, some people got corrupt. We have the opportunity to be good. It's a God-given trait. We are created by God, and we as humans are gods. There are evil and good, you know, and um, we just have to get all on the right path. Do I truly believe that if man was left to himself, that good things would happen? Would happen? Uh, I kind of doubt that. Okay, fruit inspectors, how many of them are real believers? But they all said they were Christians, right? So don't take them at their word. That's the point of the video. Okay, when I go into a church on a Saturday, we get average 10% of the Sunday morning attendants to come out to learn how to be obedient to what Christ called us to do, which is make disciples. That is consistent no matter where I am in the country. I, I've been in 24 states in Canada. It's always on a Saturday about 10% or less. My home church, to my shame, 6.6%. Okay? After it was pitched hard for five weeks. Okay? So where are the 90% of the people that don't show up for this thing? Some small percentage had to work. Some small percentage was sick or had a family commitment. That's not most of them. Consistently on a Saturday, we're only going to get 10% of the Sunday morning attendance to come. So let me ask you a question. And there's a reason for that. What is a simple majority percentage-wise? 51, good. Opinion, no right or wrong answer. If I were to tell you the word vast could be defined enormous, what is your opinion as to what a vast majority might be percentage-wise? 80, 85, 90, big number, right? The late Dr. D. James Kennedy said this, quote, The vast majority of the members of our churches aren't Christians. I say this without the slightest fear of contradiction. I base it on the empirical evidence of examining thousands of people's lives over 24 years, end quote. John MacArthur, in his book Hard to Believe, said this, quote, I am convinced that the visible church in America is jammed full of people who think they are Christians and they don't know that they're not. They've jumped on the Jesus bandwagon thinking everything is swell and they're going to be seriously surprised at the judgment, end quote. A little later on in his book, he said the biggest mission field in America is in our churches. Billy Graham said this, I would be thrilled if 5% of all the people who came down over the years during my crusades were truly saved. He thinks the vast majority is 95% and they're not. Well, what if they're right? It means tens of millions of Americans who go to church every Sunday are headed for hell and they have no clue. And I am 100% convinced they're right. If Je it is awful. If Jesus commanded us to do this, and you know you're not doing this, and here's a guy going to come in and in four hours show you how easy it is to be obedient. What in the world could be more important? But everything seems to be more important. And so the way I like to think of this is we'll, we'll say the road is an interstate highway. Okay. And we'll, and, we use, and we'll use interstate 80 as the road of life because it goes from the George Washington Bridge to San Francisco. So the world is headed eastbound on the interstate highway. See the traffic jam? 
Everybody's going eastbound, and um, it's, it's wall-to-wall people. It's a broad, wide road. Most people are on it. And see the few people that are going westbound? Okay, well, if you keep going eastbound on the road of life, where do you end up? New Jersey, hell. No, just kidding. <laughs> Christians have said, I don't want to end up there. I'm going to go the other way. Come with me, friends, relatives, neighbors, coworkers. A lot of them are going, you know what, Don? I got a great life. I don't want to change anything. If you want to go that way, good luck. Hope you're going to be happy. We leave most of them behind. Maybe a couple will come with us and follow us. We're going this way, following Jesus, going westbound. And what happens is we get a moment of weakness and we're tempted. We do an eastbound thing, something the world would do. We're immediately convicted by the indwelling Holy Spirit. We confess the sin, repent again, ask to be filled with the Spirit, and we continue to follow Jesus westbound. Here's the problem. We have churches in America full of people that live eastbound all week long. They walk like the world. They talk like the world. There is no evidence at all that they're following Christ. And then on Sundays, they'll turn around and go westbound with the true believers, fool whoever it is we need to fool because we can fool anybody but God because he examines the heart. And then as soon as church is over, we turn right back around and go living like the world again. Are we going to end up there going this way? No, and it's not about works. Works follows faith. So the question is, which way are you headed? Which way are you going on the road of life? And so here's the problem, okay? The people, a lot of the people that are unsaved in our churches have missed a key component in the salvation process, and it's the word repent. It's left, this word is left out of most gospel presentations and most gospel literature, okay? And it's critical we understand this because salvation hinges on a repentant heart. Now, the word repent, if you look it up in the, in the Strong's Concordance, occurs 78 times in 66 books of the Bible. If you look up the simple definition, which is admitting that you're a sinner and then turning, changing direction, turning from running your life your way to running it God's way, I was flipping through the Strong's Concordance page after page. I didn't even count the pages because there were so many of them. I'm thinking, and how many times is it occurring on three columns in every one of these pages? It's a theme from Genesis to Revelation. John the Baptist is going to prepare the way for Messiah. Very first word out of his mouth is repent. Jesus goes into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights, comes out to start his earthly ministry. First word out of his mouth is repent. See if you can wiggle through this. Jesus Christ himself said in Luke 13, 3, repeats himself in Luke 13, 5, unless you repent, you too will all perish. So why would I ever leave that out of a gospel presentation or sharing with somebody? It's critical, okay? Here's one passage says all must repent of their sins and turn to God and prove they've changed by the good things they do. Now, I took French from the time I was in third grade through 12th. I was in the advanced, advanced French class. We spoke nothing but French in high school in that class. I scored higher on my French college boards than English. Sadly, I haven't used French since 1972, and I remember very little. Okay, but one thing I remember is that things get lost in translation when you translate between languages. So I said, I better go back to the original language and see what the word repent really is. In the Greek, it's a word called metanoia. And when I understood this, it frightened me a little bit because it's got four components. Now, in school, three out of four is a passing grade. You get a 75. It's a C. Not here. Pass, fail. So what does it mean? There's four components. You've got to get all four. Number one, it's a change of mind. You make up your mind. You're not going to sin anymore. I'm going to be obedient to God. Number two, it has to drop 14 inches from your brain into your heart, which is where it says in Romans 10, conversion takes place. Number three, your life will change. You're not going to live eastbound anymore. You're going to turn around and go against the flow and follow Christ. And number four, your purpose for being on the planet is going to change. Okay, what is my purpose for being on the planet before I got saved? 
good job, good salary, nice home, nice car, vacation, good food, retirement, right? How does it change when you become a follower of Jesus Christ? The Bible says we were slaves to sin. We were purchased with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. He owns us. Now we are slaves to Christ. It's a master-slave relationship. He owns me. And so as the master and the slave, I need to do what the master tells me to do. I need to be obedient or I won't last long as a slave. I'm also a servant and a brother, which is wonderful. Okay, but um, the word Lord that's used that we throw around and don't even think much about is a word in the Greek called kurios. And it's interesting because it, what it says is owner. It means that he owns us. It means that it's one who has control of a person. And it means master. So those three things signify lordship. That means all these things. If you call Jesus your Lord, he is your owner. He is the one who controls you, and he is the master, and that's what it means. And so, notice what does it say in Colossians? And now, just as you accepted Christ Jesus as your Savior, you accepted him as your Lord, you must continue to follow him. And so David Platt said, surely none of us can decide to make him Lord, because Jesus is Lord regardless of what you or I decide. The question is not whether we make Jesus our Lord. The real question is whether you or I will submit to his lordship, And this is the essence of salvation. Kyle Eidelman said, a fan is an enthusiastic admirer. I wonder sometimes if our churches have become stadiums for fans. Are you a fan or a follower? There is no salvation without surrender. Jesus has plenty of fans. Our churches in the United States are full of Jesus fans. Unfortunately, he has very few followers. And fans don't go to heaven. Followers do. We need to move as many people from the fan category to the follower category as we can. And so it is impossible to call someone Lord, master, owner, and then not do what he commands us to do. Jesus said, and why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things I say? So the lordship question is, have you ever surrendered your life to the lordship of Christ in repentance and faith and committed to follow him? That's what being born again is all about. James McDonald said salvation is agreeing with God to exchange this one for the next, this life for the next one. It's a great trade. We come to the cross, morally bankrupt, say, God, I got no way to pay this debt. Uh, you know, you can take my mind, my heart, my life, and my purpose for being on the planet. You do whatever you want to do with me, Lord. And in exchange, please give me the next life, the one that goes on for all of eternity. It's a great trade. What happens when you don't repent? It's evident in lifestyle. I'm going to point you fruit inspectors for a short video. This is a young lady who's a pastor's daughter. I want you to listen to what she says and see if you think she's ever made the decision to metanoia or not. I heard the biggest cause of atheism today is Christians that acknowledge Jesus with their lips and then deny them by their lifestyle. I don't think drinking is a sin. I mean, I grew up. A minute ago, you said getting drunk was. My dad is a preacher. I grew up as uh, in a Christian home. I know God. I have a relationship with God, and. Everybody sins. I mean, I don't think going out and drinking every once in a while is a sin. But a second ago, you said getting drunk is. Yeah. And then yeah. before that, you said getting, you were going to go get drunk. Here it comes. I think you're right. For some reason, I just am so caught up in the world. Like I, I, It's like I turn to God, but then when everybody else is not around, I let other things get back in. And I've done that my entire life. Every, my entire life, I've always done that. I have a lot of Christian friends, but they all, they all do this too. Metanoia? No. Here's what she said. Wait a minute. My dad's a preacher. I was raised in a Christian home. I know God. I have a relationship with God. I mean, everybody sins. I don't think that going out and drinking every once in a while is a sin. 
He said, okay, but you said going out to get drunk was a sin. And the three of you tonight are going out to get drunk. And she laughs and goes, yeah, I think you're right. And then she says this, and I'll plug her right into my interstate highway illustration. She said, for some reason, I'm just so caught up in the world. It's like I turn to God. I'll insert on Sunday mornings in parentheses. But when everyone else is not around, the true believers in parentheses, I let other things get back in. And I've done that my entire life. My entire life always done that. Which way is she going? Eastbound. She says, I have a lot of Christian friends, but they all do this too. Um, David Jeremiah said, where there is no spiritual fruit, there is no spiritual life. End of discussion. And so I believe there's three kinds of believers. There are true believers who surrender their lives to the lordship of Christ in repentance and faith, and they are following Jesus as best they can, and they're born again. Then we got the unbelievers. We all know who they are. They're easy to identify. The third group is a little bit harder to identify. And this group is the group that I think fills and overpopulates churches in America. And this group of people are, are going to hear the seven scariest words in all the Bible from Jesus himself after they tell him, Lord, I cast out demons in your name. I perform miraculous signs in your name. I heal the sick in your name. And he says, depart from me. I never knew you. And who's he talking about when he says that in Matthew chapter 7? Specifically, church people. Yeah. Why is that? Because is the world doing anything in Jesus' name? No. It's people that are in church doing the church thing. The people that fill our churches in America. And I call this group the make-believers. And sadly, I think our churches in America are full of make-believers. And so the question this afternoon is, which one of the three of these are you? I don't know. That's between you and the Lord. But if you're trying to figure it out, i got a video to help. This is a video of a make-believer. He says all of the right things, but the truth is printed around him. Hey, I'm Ryan. I'm a Christian, and this is my story. Growing up, I never missed going to church. When I was 12, I accepted Christ as my Savior. I was even baptized. It, it undoubtedly was a very important decision. It even affected how I lived in high school. I mean, don't get me wrong. I... I had fun on the weekends. I had a girlfriend, a couple, but I was a normal high school kid. College was one big blur, but I did make it to church out of obedience. And after school, I married a great girl, and she's been a great influence on me. Life's been good. I have a house, three kids. I couldn't ask for more. I mean, sure, I worry about my future. I mean, my marriage, it could be better. And I need to spend more time with my kids. But, but things will be all right. I have my faith. You may not hear me talk about it a lot, but it's just because it's personal. But don't worry for me. My Jesus is real. So after believing and repenting, the last thing you've got to do, last Christianese word you've got to be able to define is you're going to receive. You're going to receive the gift. You place your faith and trust in Christ alone. Fall at the cross, morally bankrupt, say, God, I've got a way to pay the debt. Let Jesus pay it in full. He'll gladly do that. Scripture says we are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. So the gospel is pretty simple. There's a relationship you were created to have. Oh, thank you. It's one you don't have. 
It's one you can have, but you must choose to have it. By doing three Christianese words, you've got to be able to simply define. That's believe, repent, and receive. I would suggest you type these five lines in a word processor. Print out three or four copies in a big font. Hang them wherever you spend time. On your dashboard, above your desk, above your workbench, wherever. And just practice this so it becomes conversational. Because you're probably not going to remember it when you walk out the door here today. So you've got to put a little bit of effort in to do this. But this is so simple. Anybody can understand it. But you've got to be able to simply define those three Christianese words. So whatever story or illustration motivates you to action, I don't really care. I just pray you get obedient and do what God told you to do. And take the risk. You know what? I only remember being laughed at one time. I'm sorry? Oh, you have to pull it out. That was done purposely. It's all this, the four points we covered. I don't, I don't put it in one spot because I want you to go back through the notes and find it. There's a method to my madness. Okay? I only remember one time being laughed at. It was by a male waiter during bike week on A1A in Florida at an Italian restaurant. But he gave us a prayer request, and we gave him a gospel of John with a nice note in it and a good tip who knows how God will use it. And everyone here can do this without exception. This is not hard to do. Okay? But don't expect instant perfection. Don't compare you to me. I've been doing this as a lifestyle for quite a while. So it's just how I live my life every day. You can get to that point, but it'll take a little, little effort. Take little steps. Um, learn from mistakes you make. I still make mistakes on occasion. And, uh, but you know what? You just confess it, repent, ask to do better the next time. Lord, bring someone along who will be more faithful than me. And uh, rejoice in success and keep improving over time. Now, if you have unsaved Catholic friends or relatives, this link that I put in your handout is the video to send them. Watch it first. Most powerful gospel presentation I've ever seen for a lost Catholic person. I was trying to lead this old uh, police officer friend of mine to Christ, and I couldn't get him to make a decision. This video is what did it. He watched it twice, and he called me up panicked that he was going to go to hell. And I led him to Christ on the phone, which was really cool. But uh, use that. Now, here's what disciple-making is all about. Disciples are made when new believers are taught the word, led by example, and then trained to transfer the faith to others. That's what we're commanded to do. I think discipleship is so huge. Making disciples is huge. And I think Satan is going to do everything he can to keep us from making disciples. He'll get us studying for sermons, which isn't a bad thing. He'll get us in Bible studies, which obviously isn't a bad thing. Worship services, what, whatever. You know, doing this, doing that. Speaking to masses of people. Writing books. Those are all good things. But the primary calling is to go and make disciples. That's the commission, it's, it's, which, which means going to people who don't believe. That's what Matthew 28 was about. It's like going to the people who don't know about the resurrection. Here's the resurrected Christ, and go make disciples of all the nations. Baptize them. They don't even know about the baptism of the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit. Teach them, obey every, teach them to obey everything I commanded you. Like that's Jesus' rising from the dead command to us. And so Satan's going to want us to do anything but make disciples. Even those of us who are in ministry, he'll keep us busy doing services, doing this or that. Just make sure you don't make disciples because that's what's going to change the world. And so even Jesus, you look at Jesus, he, he could have been doing a lot of great things. He did a lot of great things. But he always made time. The priority was discipleship. The priority was saying, no, I, I'm going to be gone soon, and these men are going to have to carry out the work. 
And so he took these basically unbelievers and saying, you know what, walk with me. Let me explain to you everything I know. Let me teach you how to obey. Watch my life. Walk with me. See my life. And too often in the church, we don't get to that point. We don't, we don't let people in. We'll have Bible studies. Let them share a few prayer requests. But we don't walk with them. And Satan doesn't want you to walk with him. He, he wants your house private. You know, he wants you to have some privacy. Keep all those people out. Even pastors, keep them out because you're tired of, you know, get. And it's become like this job or this part time little occupation or hobby rather than going, no, this is the most important thing that I do make disciples. And so for me, I, I realized that was a pattern in my life. While, yes, God has called me to the masses, and I will do that. He's called me to teach the Word of God, and I will do that. But He wants me to make disciples. And the last few years, I've been focused on that more than ever, really digging deep into people's lives and um, letting them see my life and getting the smaller groups, which isn't as sexy as the thousands and thousands, and it isn't as glamorous, and no one's going to know about this stuff you just do it and man i am seeing god do some amazing things through some of these disciples now and things i never would have i i just i don't know why i doubted him but but all my life i felt like i gotta do it i gotta do it because i know god will use me but to just go no you know what god's gonna use other people and let me be more of a coach now and let me disciple them, you know, at this point in my life and, and let their ministries expand. Um, I kind of said, you know, I, I'm i done being Kobe. I want to be Phil Jackson or Greg Popovich. You know, I want to be the guy that coaches and goes, no, go, go, go play. It's your time now. Let me just work with these people. And I just love it. I love them being a part of my family. I love them being part of my life. I love working side by side with them and seeing what God's doing through them. Um, and uh, gosh, I, I just wouldn't trade it for the world right now. Okay, what do you tell someone that you get to lead to the Lord? I still lead people in prayers, but I'm very, very careful to make sure they understand it is not about the prayer, it's about your heart. And what I told John on the phone is I explained the gospel to him, he goes, so what do I need to do? I said, well, what you need to do is what I told you. He goes, well, don't I need to pray? I said, no. He goes, what if I want to pray? I said, go ahead. He goes, well, I don't know what to pray. I said, well, I can tell you what to pray. But I said, don't just repeat my words. Because I said, if your heart is not in the words, God knows that you can't lie to God. He goes, well, I wouldn't lie to God. And I was able to lead him to Christ using the prayer. So I can't disciple this guy. He lived 125 miles away from me. So I had to start the process. I said, John, pray every day. You've got a brand new father who's in heaven. For the first time, you can pray and in full confidence know he's going to hear you. Number two, God really wants to speak to you. You know how he does that? You've got to buy a copy of his word, read it, and apply what you read to your life. I'll send you a link to an accurate modern translation with some helps. Read it every day and apply what you read to your life. Number three, you need to join a good Bible-believing church. We ended up connecting with a church, a big church, has multiple campuses in Nutley, New Jersey, he sets up church every Sunday morning because it's a rented place at 6 a.m. He called me one, one day in like late April or May. And he goes, what are you doing on May's whatever it was? And I said, I don't know why. He said, I was kind of hoping you could come to New Jersey. I said, why would I want to do that? I escaped in 88, never looked back. 
He said, well, because I'm getting baptized on Sunday. I'm like, oh, I'm going to miss it. So he sent me pictures, which was really cool. Okay, but anyway, here's what we covered today, these four points. Remember, we talked about the three open prayer, Lord, open doors, Lord, open hearts, Lord, open my mouth. Remember, you're only successful if you show and tell. And this is important. David Jeremiah said, believers have but a few days to serve the Lord, and then he will return. Whatever they should do for him, they need to do it now. There's a sense of urgency here because we have a limited time left. And so this is a video that shows how short the time could be. Hey, Noah, need some volume on this one. It's really badly recorded. Notice how much time you had to make a decision once the Lord came back. Twinkling of an eye. That was an exceptional church. They took a ton of people out of that church. But it makes a good point. Now, for some reason, this side of the room jumped higher than this side of the room. I'm still trying to figure out what happened. I didn't see anybody clear cushions, but this side, especially you two ladies. You two were really up there. It was like, whoa. (laughs) But it makes a good point, okay? It's going to happen quickly in the twinkling of an eye. God's truth must go forth, carried and defended by those who have committed their lives to his son is an important task, an awesome responsibility, and a profound privilege to have this commission. God really wants to use you. The only question is, will you let him? Uh, Pastor Ron said this. He said, Don, you know, I learned from watching you for a week at Bike Week. He goes, evangelism isn't an event for you. I know you've done lots of event evangelism with the teens, but it's a lifestyle that you live. He said, I don't have the gift of evangelism. As a pastor, I've been, do, I've been entrusted to do the work of an evangelist. I've always struggled with that. He said, but I can do what you're doing. I said, anybody can do what I'm doing. Two days after bike week, he called me up and he said, Don, I have shared Christ with more people in the past two days than I did in the past 14 years combined as a Baptist minister. It's dramatically changed his life. 
He shares his faith in Christ every day as a lifestyle. He's my best friend other than my wife, and he's the chairman of the board of my ministry. He's my, my riding buddy, too. So here's what we're going to do. Pull out your tape measures. This is our little object lesson for today. Everybody got a tape measure? Okay. I want you to turn it over so that the small numbers are facing you, which means that in your left hand it should say name, date, weight, length, those kinds of things. Okay? Everybody got it? All right. The numbers that you're looking at represent the years of your life on planet Earth, which means that the zero point is the month, day, and year that you were born. So what I want you to do is scroll across to the age you were at when you gave your life to Jesus Christ and stop there. Watch this video. This is a pastor's wife from Nebo, North Carolina, that attended a training I did with Billy Graham. Hi, my name is Crystal Baker. My husband is the administrative pastor here at the church, and I have two wonderful boys, Ian and Morgan, who go here. Today, I just want to share a little bit of my story and why I'm being baptized today. A few months ago, my husband and I went to a class um, about how to share your faith. And at the end of the class, we were presented with a measuring tape. The teacher, he asked us to um, get our measuring tape out. And he said, I want you to move over to the number that represents the age you were when you were saved. And so I got my tape out and I just looked at it and became kind of angry and frustrated a little bit. Um, just looking at it so you know I saw everyone around me moving over and the the teacher said now tear it off you know I was confused I was I didn't know what age to move over to so I just folded it up and put it in my purse and um, afterwards we left and um, we were in the truck and I looked over at Ivan and I said I didn't know what age to tear off on that tape and uh, so we just started having a conversation. And uh, he said, well, you know, what age were you saved? And I said, well, you know, I prayed a prayer as a child, but I know I didn't get saved because I was only doing it because my mom wanted me to. And I prayed a prayer as an adult. Um, but the truth was, both of the times that I prayed those prayers, I was in rebellion of God. Both times. The truth was that God wasn't going to tell me what to do. So I kind of, you know, started to panic a little bit. And God calmed me down. And he brought my mind to this moment. Several years ago, when I was at home, I went by a mirror and I stopped and I looked and I looked at myself in the mirror and all I, could, all I had was disgust for what I was seeing. And I looked at that mirror and I was talking to myself and I said, I'm sick of you. I'm sick of you and your ways and you being in control. So I turned away from the mirror and I looked up to God.
And I opened my hands. And I said, God, I'm giving you my life. I'm tired of being in control. I'm tired of being in rebellion of you. I'm tired of being in control of religion, telling me how I need to be and how I need to act. I know you have a better plan for me than I have for myself. So that's the day of my salvation. That's the day I presented God with me. I said, here I am. I'm scared. I don't know what you have for me. But I'm trusting you with everything that I have left. And that was the day of my salvation. And so in the truck, you know, I was still going through a conversation in my mind with God. And um, I thought, but God, if that was the day of my salvation, you know, what about all those times that I had encounters with you before that day? And he calmed me and he said, child, Crystal, I was pursuing you. Those were very real moments. And I understood why the last several years I had been feeling the nudge that I needed to be baptized. And I am super excited to share my faith with you guys and how I came to that faith, how I believed a false gospel that if I prayed a prayer but was still in rebellion of God, I was saved. And it just wasn't true. When you accept Jesus... He doesn't go into a little pocket of your heart and you get to continue to live however you want to live and do anything you want to do. And to be honest, I would never have said it out loud, but I hated God. I was angry at him and I hated him. And you can't be saved and hate God. When I believed the real gospel and I accepted the gift that Jesus had given us by dying on the cross, accepted Jesus into my life, to do what he wants to do. That's the true gospel. The true gospel enters your life, changes it, and you're giving over to Jesus. You give up your life for him. And so today I'm excited to be baptized. I'm excited to share this moment with all of you because I truly love everyone in this church. And I'm excited to share this with you. And at the same time, I know I'm not the only one. I know I'm not the only one who grew up in church and thinking that if I prayed a prayer and didn't give my life to Jesus, that I was saved. So I'm not asking you to doubt your salvation. I'm asking you to ask yourself some questions. Did I just pray a prayer, but my heart was in total rebellion? And still is. Are you angry at God? Have you in your mind told God, you're not telling me what to do? Have you just been following religion's rules? Just been reading your Bible when you're told to do it? Or just attending church so that you can say you did and look good in the community? When you have the true gospel, when you are truly saved, there's a desire in your heart to learn more about this God. And there's a desire to learn more about salvation, about why he did what he did. Do you have that? And if not, there are tons of people in this church who would love to share with you the true gospel. 
the gospel that truly saves. The gospel that's not just praying a prayer and never living it out in your life. For me, I was able to go to elders of our church and I was able to ask questions. I was able to go to them and say, is this correct? Am I, is what I'm listening to correct? You know, where should I begin reading? And so elders are available. Anyone on our staff would be glad to share this with you, but there's lots of other people. Do not stay in your questions. Get your questions answered. I love you, church. Okay. So I was 19 at premarital counseling. That was the age I gave my life to Christ. So I'm going to tear it off there. You tear it off at whatever age you were at. Hold that piece up. Zero to whatever. Okay. Crumple that up and put it aside. Don't throw it on the floor because somebody's got to clean this room. But why do we do that? Because you know what? This means nothing. It's all been forgiven as far as the east is from the west. Don't have to give an account of that. But now we start a new phase in life. And for these years here, we're going to have to stand before Jesus alone at the judgment seat of Christ and have to give an account of our lives. So I want you to scroll across to your current age, whatever that is. I'm 64, so I'll tear it off there. You do the same. Hold up the age you were at from when you gave your life to Christ to your current age, whatever that is. Okay, this is scary because there's a lot of things I screwed up during this period of time that I'm going to have to give an account for. But I can't change it, so I'm going to put that aside. Now we have the final one. And this is where it gets hard because this is your current age to whatever age you think you might live to. Now, this goes up to 184. I, I think that we're going to have to tear it off someplace between here and there, okay? My mom lived to 94. My dad lived to 86. If I'm generous and the Lord doesn't come back between now and then, let's say 90 for me, I'm going to tear it off. You do the same. Put aside the long piece that goes up to 184 because you're not going to need that one. Okay, now what is this? This is just uh, like a souvenir, a little daily reminder of the fact that you have a limited amount of time to do what the Lord left us here to do. Okay, my friend Chuck, his 18-year-old son was killed by a drunk driver, 1230 in the afternoon, on his way to get eyeglasses for college. One year and nine days later, my friend Chuck was out on a motorcycle that had got him, and a 16-year-old kid pulled out in front of him. He hit him broadside at 55 and was killed instantly. One year and nine days apart in the same family. I had to do the eulogy at the funeral in Maine. Chuck, thankfully, they, we believe they both were saved. But Chuck had this much time. And three seconds before each of those accidents happened, neither one of them knew they were going to be in the presence of God. We don't know they were going to make it to this. We could go past it, but then again, this could be your story. So again, what David Jeremiah said, we need to do it now. Put that aside. The point here is we want you to finish life strong so that when Jesus comes, we're not, a, we're not ashamed. We you know, put that extra effort in for the last years of our life, whatever it is, and made the impact that he wants us to have. Okay, David, uh, I'm sorry, James McDonald said, if your faith hasn't changed you, then your faith hasn't saved you. And David Platt said, people who claim to be Christians while their lives look no different from the rest of the world, are clearly not Christians. And A.W. Tozer said, the Holy Spirit never enters a man and then lets him live like the world. You can be sure of that. And so today, when you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. We're going to have a two-part closing prayer. One of the things that happens at these trainings is we've seen over 1,500 people get saved at the training. That blows my mind because, again, I've got what I'm calling the cream of the crop of the church. 
I mean, you could have been doing a lot of other things this afternoon and you made a decision to be here because this was a priority. So out of this group of people, we've seen 1,500 people get saved. Including in that number were four pastors, a worship leader at a big Baptist church in South Carolina, a worship team member on a, uh, a worship team in New Jersey, and a vice president of the Pocket Testament League. So I never assume everybody's saved. I don't know if the Holy Spirit's speaking to your heart, but you know if he has been. If you're feeling guilt, you're feeling conviction, you're feeling something isn't right, or maybe, you know, you realize, hey, I never heard of this make-believer term, but that describes me, you better fix it. Okay? So I'm going to pray a simple salvation prayer. It is not about the prayer. If you need to be saved, talk to God on your own, or you can use my words if they reflect what's going on in your heart. Then I'm going to say in Jesus' name, amen, I'm going to pray a second prayer for the body of Christ, each of us individually, because we have failed at doing what he left us here to do. And we're going to confess a bunch of things and start fresh. So let's pray. If God is speaking in your heart about salvation, just say something like, God, I am so sorry for my sins. I'm willing to turn from them right now with every ounce of my being. I surrender to you my mind, my heart, my life on planet Earth, and my purpose for being here. And ask Jesus to be Lord over all of me. I surrender to his lordship. I believe that Jesus is your son. I believe that he died on the cross for me personally. And I believe that you raised him from the dead. And right now, God, I'd like Jesus not only to be the Lord of my life, but I pray that he'd be my savior for all of eternity. And I humbly ask that you save me. And I thank you for doing that in Jesus' name. Father, for the rest of us, Lord, um, we've been caught up in life in America. You know, the American dream. We've, got, we've been blessed to live in the greatest nation that's ever existed on planet Earth. And we're just overflowing with, with blessings and, uh, and just your goodness. And so we've been caught up in our homes, in our jobs, in our family, in our chores, in our recreation, in church. And Satan has used the busyness of life in America to keep us from doing what you commanded us to do, which is make disciples, which starts with us sharing our faith. So forgive us for not doing this. Forgive us for being ashamed to name the name of Jesus when you've connected us with people. And forgive us for being ashamed to name his name when we've had opportunities to do so. We pray that you'll forgive us of these sins, that you'll cleanse us from all unrighteousness, that you'll fill us and empower us with your Holy Spirit as we go forth from here. And we pray that you will open doors and open hearts, help us to see those doors open, and then give us courage and boldness to open our mouths and say something. God, you can change this whole area beginning in, in Lynchburg using this group of people. And I'll pray that you'll use each and every one of them in a powerful way in their sphere of influence. And that uh, this church will experience true biblical numeric church growth as we're obedient to what you told us to do. Give them great success. Be with them, I ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Cornerstone Community Church. We are located in Lynchburg, Virginia at 525 Old Graves Mill Road. You can find us online at cornerstonelynchburg.com. Contact us by email, cornerstonecom at comcast.net. Or call us at 434-847-4796. We pray the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace.